This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm Avi Stamen, co-host of Scholarly Communication. When I'm not podcasting, I dedicate my time to my lovely family, mountain biking, and running my company, Academic Language Experts. At Academic Language Experts, we help academic scholars, researchers, and science professionals with translation, editing, writing and publication support, and other help for their, to promote their research. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Anna Gubroff Arenas. A word about uh, Anna. So Anna is uh, the Mary Curie Research Fellow at the University of Groningen. Her project looks at the impact of machine translation on translation creativity and the reader's experience in the context of literary texts. Anna is also a senior lecturer in translation and multimodal technologies at the University of Surrey, where she is a member of the Center for Translation Studies. She has worked for more than 20 years in the translation and localization industry in roles that range from translator to operations manager. She has authored refereed articles and book chapters on machine translation, post-editing productivity, quality and experience, pre-editing and post-editing, reading comprehension of machine translation output, translator training and creativity, and reading experience with different translation modalities. Anna, thank you so much for joining me today. It's really a pleasure to have you on. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, it's it's uh, the pleasure is really all ours. In fact, um, when I came across your uh, article uh, in in Slater, which we'll talk about a bit later, uh, a few a few days ago, I said this is this is a, a woman who's working on really interesting um, uh, research, and I, I I most definitely have to have to have her on. Okay. So maybe for starters, Anna, you can tell us a little bit about how you got into the world of translation studies as an academic field in the first place. Well, um, I studied translation and interpreting uh, a long time ago. <laughs> um, I was always interested in English and I studied English when I was very young. And then I did a, an exchange program in the United States. And when I came back to Granada, Spain, I decided to study translation and interpreting. So then I worked 
as a translator and interpreter, well, mainly translator, for 23 years. And in this period, at the end of this period, I decided to do a PhD on um, translation studies with Anthony Pym, who is a very reputable and famous translation scholar. Because of this professional experience, my interest in research was um, geared towards machine translation because as a practitioner, I was confronted with machine translation and I wanted to know uh, at the time, it was very, very bad, <laughs> the results. Um, but I was curious to know if it would really help or not translators. So that's how I came about. So can you tell us a little bit about the evolution of um, machine translation? Sort of what is the what are the underpinning uh, foundations of how it's built or how it's evolved over time? And I want to. I also want to keep in mind that because we have a scholarly audience, I'm sure our audience would be curious to hear about um, applications for them uh, in their own research as well. Well, uh, machine translation technology is is actually dates back from the Second World War because um, Americans were trying to decipher what the Russians, you know, uh, were saying. So it's quite. Um, the origin is quite, uh, I don't want to say old, but dates back from the Cold War, post-Second World War. But it, um, it wasn't use, use, usable in those days. Um, when translators started working uh, with it, it uh, was... Uh, maybe in the around the 1980s or 90s when the paradigm then was what was called rule-based machine translation. And to explain that very sim simply, uh, you created the rules for the language and you created the dictionaries of equivalences. It wasn't as simple as a dictionary because you had to Obviously, for each word, you had the root of that word and then the different endings and ev everything, you know, had to be coded. But it resembled uh, a set of rules that you program for each language and its equivalence. So the results were quite poor and it required a lot of work to get these rules up and running because each language had to learn its own particular, each language combination had to learn its own particular rules. But with the advent of internet and all this parallel data that translators had actually produced, some monolingual data, but mainly a lot of bilingual data created uh, through translation memories and CAD tools, then there was available a lot of digital data that was bilingual and that was parallel. So you had one English text and your parallel sentence. So applying some statistical measures to this, um, researchers said, oh, we could, you know, apply different, different um, formulas here, statistical formulas, 
and say what is the probability for sentence A to be sentence B. This is, a, again, very simplistic. Um, and this, this was the second trans, uh, machine translation paradigm, with, which is a statistical machine translation. I mean, there are a lot of variations in this. I'm, I'm, I'm just summarizing. Um, and the results were much improved. And what was um, better was that it was much easier to get an engine up and running quite quickly because you didn't need to set up all these rules. You could have a model, and this model will learn from the data you fed the model, the model. So you just needed basically loads of data. And this became known as, you know, data is gold because data is what you needed. You didn't need the rules anymore. Of course, there were some hybrids that used data and rules. And I think all the times uh, th there are all these hybrids. And then the latest paradigm, which is the most recent one, the one that we have been using for the last maybe five or six years, is the neural machine translation, uh, which has become more complicated for us to understand, for us, I mean, people that come from the humanities or a linguistic background, but basically is, as computers have a lot more power to compute, neural machine translation doesn't look at uh, so much. It converts, I'm going to try to explain it because it, it is difficult even for me to understand it. It converts sentences into vectors, into a mathematical operation. And these vectors then, uh, you run them through the model and according to their position in the sentence and the position in a lot of corpus, it gives you a, an output vector. So it's all mathematical now. And that's why people say, or not even the people running the models know what is happening inside the model, which, with, which SMT, we knew more or less how to tweak the system to get better results because it was working with um, not as a vector level, but as an engram level. I hope I'm not saying anything uh, that is wrong. <laughs> um, so now it's quite sophisticated and the results are have improved, especially in those languages that were not that close before, where the results were not that good. For example, German English, Chinese English and all this. But the problem with NMT is precisely that, that we don't know where the machine is making the mistake. And sometimes the machine does its own translation and comes up with either new words that do not exist or um, translations that sound very fluent, but it's not what the source text says. So let's say that NMT is fluent and it has it's an improvement over SMT, but you cannot really get rid of the translator because there might be some errors that are quite um, substantial. So this is more or less the evolution. So in practical terms, RMT was kind of difficult to build. So only, you know, the European Parliament, the European Commission and, and big companies could, could implement these models. SMT became easier and then we started seeing public engines like Google Translate and, 
and Microsoft Bing and, and etc. I mean, now there are many. And with NMT, we see a lot more public engines. And um, I don't know if if the, every company can customize an engine, but every company has, every translation company has it easier to access an empty developer that will help you to set up your solution. So it has become quite common to be able to access this. So let me ask you, what industries are, uh, you know, are MNT really set up to serve? I mean, you, you mentioned, you know, big uh, companies and, and, and the European Commission. Um, what are the, what are the main, you know, sort of um, buyers of such, uh, of such work? And, 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 and maybe as like a follow-up and where, you know, so where is machine translation most helpful and what are certain, you know, maybe other areas where you find that, machine translation um, still doesn't provide an adequate solution um, for, you know, for the customer. I mean, obviously, um, you know, we've all had our experiences on Google Translate. We come across something humorous or, you know, mistaken that anyone would know. And those are the, you know, the popular cases. But, you know, clearly there's a big industry for the machine translation as well. So who does that serve and who does it not serve? I think uh, in the... So nowadays, anybody can have access to machine translation. So if you are even a freelance translator, you can you don't only use the public engines, but you can actually buy a set of data from Google or from Bing or from DeepL. You can buy it and use it personally. So even a freelance translator, a, a language service provider, or, a, or a, a big company like Microsoft or Google, they all use machine translation. But at an at a individual level, something that was difficult before, now anybody can buy MT from DeepL, from um, Google, from Microsoft Bing. I don't want to make any, <laughs> I don't want to, you know, commercialize any of this. I, I don't have any interest, but I, I know a lot of freelancers can use it. So is it useful? I think uh, it depends on many factors. Of course, your domain, you know, as I said, the European Commission, of course, has its engines and uses it. Do they use it all the time? No, maybe for something that is sensitive, they don't. Do translators, if I decide as a translator to buy data from DPL, do I always use it? Maybe not. But in, in things that are repetitive, technical, where accuracy is needed, um, it seems to be doing a good job and all the research points out to the fact that machine translation in certain domains increases productivity without necessarily harming the end product. Uh, but there has to be some post-editing, of course. Right. And by post-editing, you mean the human translator that's going over the machine translation to, uh, or the human editor uh, to correct mistakes or, you know, smooth out the language. Okay. Uh, some people offer raw empty output, so without any corrections, but usually when they do offer this, they, they, they you know, like TripAdvisor, when you want to um, look at a hotel, sometimes you notice, oh, this translation is awful, and it's, it's because uh, it's probably empty, 
But then they have a disclaimer saying, you know, these translations are provided by an engine. Nobody's looking at this. So we just give this to you so you can have an idea. The gist, what it's called in the industry, gisting. So you use MT for gisting, but not really to do something professional. If you need something professional, you will need a translator to go over the output and correct it, what is called post-editing. Okay. So that, that, that sort of brings me as a lead into your, to your study, which is how I came across, um, you know, your work in the first place, which really is fascinating. Um, reading an article on Slater, which is an industry magazine in the language industry, uh, about a study you did trying to understand and measure uh, reading comprehension and reading interest on the part of uh, specifically in the field of literary uh, uh, translation. So can you tell us a little bit about the background for that, um, for that study that you did and kind of what were the results that you found? So I have been studying how MT um, was used uh, with technical text and if, if it was useful in terms of product, productivity. So if really translators were saving time and if the final quality of this product that was done through post-editing was equivalent to the final product if a translator worked on, 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 on her own, right? Um, so I had seen that even though there was a, a high intra-subject variability, so because translators are humans, some for some it's a big help, for others it's not so much. So... Obviously, it's difficult in translation to say machine translation is always helpful because obviously people have different experience. They type faster or slower. They have different knowledge of the domain they are translating. But overall, we could see that in in a technical domain, machine translation help in productivity without harming the final quality of the text. But then I became curious to see if this was the case with literary translation, because, of course, as I explained in the beginning, now we had NMT, Neural Machine Translation, and everybody, well, everybody, no. (laughs) Some um, NMT providers were claiming this human parity between human translation and, and machine translation, saying it's getting so good that you cannot even tell the difference between one and the other, which of course is not true. It's the way you they do the mathematics to achieve this human parity. But it, it is undeniable that NMT offers better results. So I wonder, is it really good to use in something more creative? Because as a, as a person that reads and likes literature, you don't like literature only because it's accurate. You always like literature because of the way it's written, the, what it's called the style, which is a bit vague, but we can talk about that later. So I decided to look at machine translation when translating literary text to see if post-editing machine translation output or translating without anything if it was different, 
And in, in our research, we found that, yes, it was different. So not only there were more errors after post-editing than after translation, but also the creative factor, and we can talk about how I measure that later, was also higher in human translation than in post-editing translation. And of course, higher than machine translation on its own. So then we took these texts and we uh, gather a cohort of readers to see if they could see the difference, if they would engage differently with this type of texts. And we found that for the, the language combination English to Catalan, there was a difference in engagement, in enjoyment, in translation reception. Um, but for the Dutch readers, even though the results had shown that human translation was more creative, the readers did not seem to show a preference for human translation over the post-edited version, although everybody showed a preference over machine translation output on its own. So machine translation on its own might have a role in terms of, again, getting the gist, but people enjoy much more when there is a human intervention, of course. Right. Okay, so if I understand what you're saying correctly, at least in the, in the example, in the case of the Catalan, um, there, even though they were the same translators who were translating from scratch and doing the post-machine translation editing, um, the, the readers preferred those translations that were done from scratch um, by the humans. Do you have any um, theory as to why that may be? It's the same people who are doing the work. Why should the results be different? Well, after the interviews that we carry out with them and we we measure something, this is a bit technical, but we measure also um, a cre creativity in translation. So we measure creative shifts uh, from um, given a translation problem in the source text, how translators had resolved that translation problem. And we found that the human translation had more creative shifts, so they employ, in a way, I'm going to simplify this, better solutions. But when they were post-editing, they found the text already there, and the, this constrained a little bit the productivity. So the process by which you have a problem, you think about alternative solutions in your head, and then you decide one solution, this was happened freely in the human translation, when the translators were given already an output, this they tried to make the best out of that proposal, not necessarily thinking different proposals. And this seemed to have been a factor. And they said also this in the interviews. Now, we provided them with the output by default, you know, so they had to post edit already an output. It's different, I think, if you use the output once you have started thinking. We didn't test it that. So we didn't say, okay, this is the source sentence, think of solutions, and then we'll give you the output and, and, and now you, you post edit it. 
we didn't do that because obviously that's not the way it's normally done. Normally, translators are given the output and asked to post edit. So this um, constraints their creativity. Not only the Catalans, but also the Dutch said the same. And the reviewers that review the translations also said that the human translation in both languages was, was significantly better by significantly, not statistically, because we only had, obviously, four translators, but that it was better in terms of errors and creative shifts, the Dutch and the Catalan. But the readers in Catalan seem to like more the human because of this creativity, but it appeared that the Dutch thought that the P and the human was of equal, let's say, they like it equally. And our theory, or our hypothesis for that is that the, the source text was in English. It was a short text written by Kurt Vonnegut, uh, the American writer. So my hypothesis is that Dutch readers are very used to reading in English. Therefore, a text that is so close to the English text doesn't bother them. So my question now is, what if it had been, let's say, from Russian or from Spanish, uh, a language that they don't usually read in their original uh, language, would they experience the same, you know, would they like the same the P than the the human? And I want to circle back around to, you know, to just to our audience, which is really, you know, probably has an interest in the academic um, side of this, would you categorize, you know, you specifically did this uh, study uh, using literary text. So I assume, you know, you were talking about a literary novel, um, but would you categorize academic texts more uh, on the long lines of creative texts or would you categorize them more, uh, you know, that, that which may be more difficult and require more human creativity um, or would you categorize them more on the technical side and, uh, and and do you think there's maybe a difference between, you know, humanities, social sciences, and uh, maybe STEM fields in this regard? I think there is a difference, of course, because in one you might give a lot of uh, hard data, and the, in the, not in all the humanities, but in, in, in certain aspects of the humanities, so soft data, you know, you're, you're using words to to explain nuances. And these nuances sometimes are not understood by the machines because the machine uh, looks at probability. So if you use the word, we were discussing this yesterday, you know, maybe you say that something is effective or efficient or usable or whatever, the machine might look for the most probable translation, the most frequent translation. But this might not be the case for your own paper, because in your own paper you want the nuances. So I, there are people that have done research in academics using machine translation. Say, for example, you're a Spanish academic, you want to publish in, in English, and you want to use machine translation to help you out. And they have found that in some cases it did help them um, but of course, it's very difficult to categorize this because some people have more English than others. So 
Some people did more edits than others, etc., because they wanted to change. I, me personally, and I wouldn't trust machine translation to to do the translation of one article that I have published. But I could use machine translation and then post edit just to save myself maybe translating from scratch. But of course, depending of of I wanted to of what I wanted to achieve with that, maybe if I want to just to have one uh, article in different languages, you know, for the sake of dissemination, then maybe yes. But if I, what I want is to get published in this very reputable um, journal, maybe I need a very good editing, you know, or a very good translator. Because it's your baby, right? You want it to be correct. Yeah, that, that's generally the advice that I give scholars who ask me about this is um, when doing our, I think the machine translation can be very handy and helpful. Uh, first of all, when we're doing our literature review, if there's literature in other languages and we want to understand yes. you know, what other scholars are saying in other languages so that we're really being inclusive and making sure that we're covering the literature, you know, the, the existing literature, in a proper way. So, you know, um, just to get an idea of who's talking about what in the field, I think could be really important and valuable. Um, sometimes students who come to us and want to understand what a, you know, what a, what a paper is saying for their own studies, it could be very valuable. Um, I think where the lack of clarity comes along is when scholars confuse that to trying to use it for their own publications. And like you said, you know, they, they may may or may not, depending on their level of English, be able to post edit, and they may or may not be able to identify the false positives, the mistakes that are introduced into their research. Um, yeah, I mean, as a result, a machine so. translation can give you can turn a, a negative sentence, a, a do not, into I do. You know, I mean, something that simple can be a problem. So every time I have negative sentences, I always make sure that the output is because it can make this mistake because obviously there are more frequencies maybe of that sentence in the affirmative than in the negative. So it's, it's, it's not a, a small mistake. It can turn out to be a big mistake, you know, for your article. Yes, indeed. And all it takes is one, right, all it takes is, is, is one or two mistakes for the reviewers to say, well, you could have two problems. First of all, you can, you can, you know, the reviewers can reject an article because of, you know, an embarrassing mistake. And then, and then, or the reviewers can also miss it and then it gets published and then, you know, it can get retracted because of, such a mistake. So there's definitely, you know. Yeah, I mean, I read a lot of articles that are very boring, uh, and and not that I like it. They don't tell a story; they just dump a bunch of data, uh-huh. which for me is not really maybe academic writing. It's just okay. You're just dumping a lot of data together. If you're telling a story. I think machine translation tends to make that story a bit dull, you know, duller. It's a bo- more boring because the structures are, 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 are very always the same. While you as a person tend to, you know, use these connectors and change the connector and, and, and obviously look for this style that makes it more appealing. Yeah. yeah. And of course, in machine translation, garbage in, garbage out. We all know this, right? If, you're, if your manuscript is full of typos and spelling mistakes, the result is going to be terrible. 
while a human translation translator will detect the, your mistakes and, and fix them, right? Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah. I think I, I think um, well, well, t you know, two main things. Uh, number one is I think you have a really important point here. If if the part of the foundations of translation is from translation memory, which essentially means that we are we are making language as monolithic as possible because right because we're choosing the most frequent usage of a term and putting or of a phrase and putting that in that makes actually everyone's language much more similar to each other as opposed to much more different. So if you're looking to be unique and stand out, um, then or you have a unique writing style. Um, then I think it's really important to kind of keep that in mind that you don't want to be like everyone else when you're submitting your research. Otherwise, you know, your chances of acceptance might go down aside from embarrassing mistakes that can be made. So it's actually in my eyes, and maybe I'm taking this too far, but in my eyes, the translation, the automated machine translation is really sort of changing the way that we communicate in a way that it's in one way, it's bringing us closer together because maybe there's more shared language. But on the other end, it may be, like you said, sort of making the language more dull and less creative because there's less room for individual self-expression and more monolithic uh, yeah. writing that's similar because, to be, Because we know, we know this in research, I mean, I'm saying this, and, 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 and but because me and other people say this, of course, there are scientists working on making machine translation less dull, you know. So it, it's, it's not that it's going to be like this forever. We, we, they have a product. We look at the product. We, we give feedback. Um, I don't know if it happens so directly. But I mean, and, and then people say, oh, well, what are we doing? Then we need to improve. And then they improve it. So that's how science progresses, because we, we all work together. That's why... I, I always think and I always kind of um, encourage translators and linguists to get involved in the technology to make to make it better, right? Um, and, and also when there are these claims of human parity to be able to say, well, not really, because you know from inside out or from the inside that, that it's not really human parity, you know, for to achieve... Human parity, you would need this machine not to make these this big mistakes ever, right? Of course, uh, human translators make mistakes. Uh, but I think that the machine probably makes uh, bigger. <laughs> and and, and I, also, course, I also think that, it, that you know, the... It's upon human translators, if they want to differentiate themselves, to make sure that they are using their creative creativity and creative expression. Because I think that the human translator has an advantage in their creativity, like you like you found in the study. If they are sort of approaching the text in a similar mindset to a machine of let me translate little segments and do them literally and accurately, but not coherently and with a flow, and they sound stilted, so then it will lead the public to say, well, why am I spending money on a human translator if I'm getting similar results to a machine translation? So I think even well, there within... is something. Yeah, there is something called accountability that machines don't have. So you're also using a machine, a, a human or a translator, uh, because a translator or a company is accountable. So you want to say, look. I found an error. Why did you make an error? You can have this dialogue. 
if you use a machine, at the moment, machines are not accountable for anything. If you make a mistake and your article doesn't get, get published, you're not going to go and complain to the machine. The machine is not accountable. This is a big problem in AI at the moment because we have machines doing a lot of things, but if they make a mistake, who is going, who, you know, if, if I have to insure a car without a driver, what am I insuring? You know, who is accountable here? The company that runs this or, or what's the story? So this is a big debate that I cannot get into because uh, I, I don't have the legal uh, background and it's not my field, but this is a problem. But in, in, in translation, if you are doing something, uh, machine translation really works well in very repetitive texts that if you're translating a website uh, with, with, you know, little strings that get repeated over time and you're just changing them, maybe it's useful. But at, as soon as there is some kind of translation problem, uh, because there is a new word, neologisms, new, you know, anything that requires creativity, the machine doesn't do that well. At the moment, of course, we, we, we don't know how these machines are going to be improved by people, by scientists. But at the moment, uh, when faced for a problem, they will look for the standard solution. And that doesn't, doesn't work. Yeah, that's one of the things that I tell academics as well, is the level of repeatability in academic texts is low relative to other kinds of texts. Um, because everything needs, right, if you're too repetitive of another text, you'll be flagged for plagiarism. Um, so they, there may be similarities in certain fields where there's enough written about it, but actually with every text, every article, every book needing to be unique um, and having such super niche fields in certain areas, it's sort of hard to get the level of repeatability um, and the mass quantity of data in order to really, you know, to, to really get it to a point where it's where it's very helpful, though, like you said. And you know, also, you are creating new things in academic writing, hopefully. So you create new things. and Right. One last, I really appreciate your time. You've been really generous. One last question, and I don't know if this is something that you've delved into or not at all. Uh, what is the, is there a relationship between the machine translation and machine editing? Um, so Grammarly or any of the other uh, softwares that are out there, or are they totally, two totally different technologies that are working on different premises? Um, I don't know enough to know, you know, the kind of background algorithms that Grammarly uses and how are those uh, similar to something that an engine would use. Um, it's, it's all natural language processing. So I guess, and I'm only guessing because I don't know enough about Grammarly, but um, I guess they use natural language processing to create some of this detection of problems and all this. And in that way, it's similar because it's all the field of natural language processing. But machine translation is, is like a subfield because you're transferring one language to the other. So uh, the, 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 the technical side is, is a bit more complex when there are two languages involved. You need to tweak this, the models in different ways. But I think they all, they all use 
natural language processing and all the techniques that are available in natural language processing. Yes. So they have something in common. Right. Uh, this has been really insightful. I'm sure we could continue chatting for the next two hours, but I want you, I know that you're, you're busy and I want you to be able to get back to your day. Um, I wanted to thank you very much uh, for coming on today. If someone does want to see more of your research or your study or any of the other work, is there a good place to connect with you or to kind of follow what you're doing? Uh, oh, good question. I, I should probably have a website, right? Uh, well, a I, I, I or anything like that. Yeah. Um, our articles are um, in archive. Uh, which is the, you know, this database of scientific articles, especially technical articles, but also in the page of University of Groningen, uh, they can find my name and then look at my articles. Okay. Wonderful. Or they can contact me by email. Just like I did. I'll be happy. <laughs> Everybody likes to be read, you know. The other academics, I'm sure, they, they, they share this with me. Uh, we work in isolation, and when somebody is interested in your work, you are delighted. So they can also write to me, of course. Yeah, well, I think I think just um, you know the the entire industry. I'm not sure that academia as a whole necessarily is familiar with the industry of, or or the academics, you know, subject of translation studies and editing studies and sort of what goes into that. Um, studying some of the technologies that are that are powering uh, some of these innovations. It's a to me, it's a really unique, interesting cross, kind of between. You know, um, on the one hand, humanities theory, but also, you know, very technical um, sort of uh, machine algorithms and trying to bridge that gap is a really unique challenge. And I think it's you've provided us with really interesting insight into how it's been tried to be done in the past and, and what's what are the successes and what are some of the shortcomings and also kind of what's on tap, what we should be looking out for in the future. Yeah. And, and what uh, these uh, scientists are you know, people talk about neural machine translation as if it's something static, but it's constantly changing. It's constantly people researching and people trying to improve it. So, of course, I did this 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 um, study, and, and, and we all check DeepL or Google Translate, and, and we make certain conclusions. But this is not a static field. Next year, it will all it, it might all be different, right, or improved. Right. Yeah. In terms of creativity, I mean. Right. Interesting. All right. We'll keep our eyes out. Thank you so much, Anne. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you.